You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. We've got another fantastic episode for you today. It's just me though. I hope that's okay. I'm going to be talking about the letter to the Ephesians. One quick announcement before we jump into the the episode. We're about halfway through the course, the Center for Bible Study course that I'm teaching on Ephesians. And so if this episode is interesting to you and you'd like to learn more about Ephesians, you can go ahead and send me an email and I can see about getting you involved in the course um, if you'd like to jump in midway or if you'd like to just receive the recordings after we're done, uh, please do send me an email and I'll look into how we might make that possible for you because I want to make this material as available as we can widely. Also want to let you know that we have a new YouTube channel up, so I'm plugging that again. Um, really excited about the content that's being put out there. And again, the idea is just to make really high quality biblical studies designed for the church available broadly. So if you have a chance, check us, check us out. Our YouTube channel is the Center for Bible Study. You can also look up my name, Max Botner. Have a view, see if you like some of our videos, uh, share them widely, and please, please, if you are so inclined, subscribe. That helps the growth of our channel, and we'd very much appreciate it. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode. The topic of today's podcast is why we love Ephesians, one of my absolute favorite books of the New Testament, actually the Bible. Um... Of course, I'm being a bit presumptuous to say we because it's just me today. I am here alone recording in my office. But as a um, as the director of the illustrious Center for Bible Study, I speak on behalf of the whole center when I say we absolutely love Ephesians. It's a good day today. I've got my bottle of sparkling water here with me, um, just as it should be. Something I got addicted to during my time in Germany Typically, all the water there comes with bubbles in it. Uh, the non-bubbly kind is stilles Wasser, which is not what you necessarily want to drink. And as my German neighbor told me, you know, every time I drink a glass of stilles Wasser, I, I feel like I just want sparkling. And I have to agree with her. I think that all water should come with bubbles in it. Um, Germany, you can have various kinds of bubbles. You can have light, you can have medium, you can have the classic, which is the hardcore bubbly. That's how I like my bubbles. If it doesn't make your nose burn a little bit every time you take a sip of water, how do you really know you're being hydrated? At least that's what uh, I've come to see. So anyway, uh, we're here today to talk about Ephesians, not water, even though I could do a podcast on water, probably several. And what I want to focus on in Ephesians, in discussing the three reasons why I love this book, is kind of giving us or laying out for us the big picture. So Ephesians is really important because it gives us the big overarching picture of the gospel, of the place of God's people and the mission of God. And, um, and it gives us some wise uh, spirit-filled advice about how to navigate the broken structures of the world which we inhabit. So that's what we're going to look at today. I do want to begin with just a quick 
rundown of Paul, uh, not assuming that everybody listening to this podcast is an expert on Paul. And so I thought I'd just say a few things about the man before we dive into the letter to the Ephesians. So first off, Paul's letters come in our New Testament after the four Gospels and then Acts. We get 13 letters of Paul. These letters are ranging more or less in length. Um, Romans, the longest, through to Philemon being the shortest. They're also organized in terms of the letters that are written to churches, so longest to shortest, Romans through 2 Thessalonians. And then we get four letters to individuals, uh, delegates of Paul, or in the case of Philemon, to a person that's a uh, leader in the house church, so it would be read to, likely to the church, but nonetheless it's addressed to an individual, so we put it there. So we've got the letters of Paul organized basically in length, not, not in chronology, but in length, and um, within that collection, what we might call the Pauline corpus, uh, is actually a really diverse set of letters. So we've got Paul writing in all kinds of places and spaces about what it looks like for people concrete communities dispersed throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, what it looks like for them to be the people of God. And so Paul's letters are what we would call occasional documents. That means all of the letters, uh, there was a particular exigency or set of circumstances that led to Paul writing these letters. So he writes letters to address pastoral concerns in various communities. So we might think of Paul as a uh, pastoral theologian. And that's a bit of a different picture of Paul than we've sometimes picked up in church, which is, you know, Paul's kind of the guy where we go to get our, our theology, uh, our doctrine, um, which there is a lot of doctrine, of course, to be gleaned from Paul, but his letters are really theology applied, theology on the fly, helping to narrate people into the wider story of what the God of Israel is up to in the world. So that's what Paul's doing. He's a pastoral theologian, is how I like to think of him. I also kind of think of him as a kind of as a community organizer. He's teaching various communities, many of whom are made up predominantly, if not exclusively, of uh, Gentiles. That is to say, people who worshipped, uh, grew up worshiping other gods, and um, are are new or coming freshly to the stories of the God of Israel and to what it means to be part of this God's people. So Paul is providing a foundational story, narrating these various groups into what it means to be the people of God. So he's, his theology is applied. It's very practical. It's, it's, it's rooted in real life. And he's organizing these messianic communities, communities devoted to Jesus the Messiah uh, throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, teaching them how to live together in this new, fresh way, what he calls in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we think of Paul the author, sometimes we get the picture of Paul as modern author, sitting in his office, writing letters. But in fact, Paul is writing really in dialogue with other Christians. So many of his letters are written through a secretary. This is someone who would probably have some input in what Paul is writing. But also over half of Paul's letters designate multiple authors or multiple people that are involved in the letters. So, for example, in the Thessalonian correspondence, these are the letters Paul wrote, First and Second Thessalonians. We have Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, three people that are identified as being senders and involved in the letter writing. In the Corinthian correspondence, 1 Corinthians, we have Paul and Sosthenes. Then in 2 Corinthians, Paul and Timothy. We also have Paul and Timothy in Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And then, of course, when Paul writes Galatians, 
he brings out the big guns, generically speaking, of all the members of God's family who are with me. So Paul is bringing this apostolic message of great urgency to the church, churches in Galatia, South Galatia, South part of the Roman province of Galatia, um, with the weight of his apostolic authority and the support of these other members, including the so-called pillars of the Jerusalem community. So Paul is always writing in community and conversation, and that means that when you read Paul's letters, you're really getting what I like to think of in some ways as group projects. There's insight, wisdom being brought in from various parts of the community that are then showing up in these letters. And then, of course, Paul's entrusting people to bring those letters to various communities and to perform or recite the letter for that community and answer questions on his behalf. So Paul's always dependent in his ministry on others, people he calls his co-workers, co-laborers, fellow soldiers in the Lord, co-prisoners. These are all markers for us that Paul is anything but the rogue kind of celebrity pastor. He is a, a missionary pastor. He's involved in small communities, and he's working with others, affirming the gifts in others, and um, working in community. So I think that's a really important uh, facet of Paul's letters that we see pop out. In terms of Ephesians, let me just say a few preliminary remarks about Ephesians. These are the kind of things that Bible scholars spend quite a bit of time discussing and debating. You could argue maybe too much time, but nonetheless, they, they're uh, important issues to be aware of. And I'm also giving this to you because I assume that some of you may either be or at some point desire to read academic biblical scholarship. And these are some of the issues that you're going to uh, see in that scholarship. And so I thought it made sense to at least put it on your radar and give you some insight into how I think through some of these various critical issues. So the first thing is that Ephesians is what we call a disputed Pauline letter. There are 13 letters of Paul, seven of which are undisputed. These are letters that all modern scholars, for the most part, agree Paul wrote. Then there are these six disputed letters. And typically, Ephesians and Colossians are kind of kept in one uh, camp. Second Thessalonians is there kind of on it, in a different camp. And then you have what we call the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy, and Titus in another bucket. But these are the six that make up the disputed letters. And we could do an episode on that at some point if there's interest. But what I'm just going to focus on here is Ephesians. So why is... Why do some scholars have a hard time believing Paul wrote Ephesians? There's three main reasons why. The first is the style of the letter. The idea here is that the, the, the Greek style, the style of the Greek writing in Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. I'll talk about them more in a moment. Seem different than the style of the Greek in some of the other Pauline letters. Now, this, of course, presumes that the seven authentic letters, which are kind of diverse in and of themselves, but let's say the seven authentic letters actually could allow us to establish a Pauline style. We could then compare the style of Ephesians to those and say, mm, it looks like a different hand. In fact, that is not very scientific. <laughs> we don't have enough data, frankly, to really know what the Greek, what Paul's Greek writing looked like, whether it was consistent or changed in style, depending on the circumstances. Uh, we're dealing with letters that have been written also by secretaries. So it's a very tricky issue to kind of isolate a scholar's writing style from antiquity, in particular with the amount of data we're working with with Paul. And I think most critical scholars would acknowledge the difficulty there. I think the one that becomes more compelling for some scholars is the theology of Ephesians. 
And uh, I'll keep this really simple. I think it comes down to, for many scholars, that there's a picture that emerges of Paul, let's say the historical Paul versus the canonical Paul, the Paul we have in scripture, the historical Paul is a construct that comes out of that Paul that we think what actually Paul did and looked like and thought, maybe not look like, we don't know too much about that, but um, what he thought. So many scholars work with the idea that Paul had an imminent expectation of the parousia of Jesus. That is the return of Jesus Christ. Paul was running around the ancient Mediterranean world trying to convert as many people as he could to, uh, to Jesus Messiah before Jesus' return to judge the nations. And so that's Paul's focus. He's, he's laser focused on the return of Jesus. And when we look to Ephesians, the return of Jesus seems to have it hasn't gone away. I think that's really important to emphasize, but it seems to be less emphasized. Uh, Paul seems more interested, or the writer of Ephesians seems more interested in the session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. So that's that's one reason, and I'll make some comments on why I think that's problematic. The other one that kind of fits with that is the portrait of the church or the people of God. The ecclesia is just a word for assembly. So when Paul addresses ecclesiae in various parts of the ancient world, he's talking about local communities, right? The ecclesia in uh, Corinth, right? Groups of assemblies. Uh, when we look at Ephesians, that term seems to be used in a more global sense. We're moving towards something like the Catholic Church, if you will, a universal uh, church. So scholars see, that is to say, development from the theology of the undisputed Pauline letters uh, they see a development from that to the theology they see in Ephesians and uh, in Colossians. I have to say, I don't find this particularly persuasive. I do agree that Paul was expecting the return of Jesus in his lifetime. Uh, it's something that he had on his radar. But I also think he left his community with a theology and a way of doing life that allowed that to persist beyond uh, one generation. And I think the church has always been, been doing that, uh, adjusting and so forth. Um, so I, I don't see the sort of neurosis or major communal crisis caused by the delay of the parousia that some modern scholars uh, speculate about. I mean, you see some evidence, for example, in Second Peter, people talking about the, the day of the Lord not coming, but I just don't see it there. And especially in the patristic sources, early patristic sources, they really don't seem to be treating it as a problem that Jesus hasn't returned yet, even though the texts do um, lay out that expectation. So I don't think that we see kind of that. The other thing, too, I'll say is Ephesians is definitely focused on the return of Jesus still. It's just that the focus is particularly on Jesus at the right hand of God. But that is a focus we see in other Pauline letters as well. So I don't see that as a deviation. It might be one receives more focus in some letters than another. But I don't see the kind of huge cosmic leap that someone who assert between the undisputed and, and Ephesians on this point. So I don't find that particularly compelling. The last point, the connection to Colossians. Uh, of course, Colossians is also a disputed epistle. And so if you don't think Paul wrote Colossians, then you're probably not going to think he wrote Ephesians because Ephesians is clearly dependent in some way on Colossians. It's not a slavish dependency. There's a lot of overlap in phrases and theology. The only place where you find a lot of direct overlap is at the end of the letter. The, the final closing greeting is 49 words in the Greek. It's been taken over and copied, basically, in, in Ephesians. Other than that, you can do kind of parallels of the two, and you can see all the overlap in, uh, in thought and terminology. Clearly, these two letters have been written together, 
But if we believe Paul wrote Colossians, it's not a problem, I don't think, to uh, come up with a scenario or a set of plausible scenarios where he could have written Colossians and Ephesians at the same time or use Colossians again uh, in the writing of Ephesians time. So I don't find that particularly compelling. I do want to touch on one more point, and I'm going to try not to belabor this too much because I want to get into the parts about why I really love Ephesians. But I, I want to mention the issue of pseudepigraphy more broadly because it is something that's gotten out there in the larger popular discourse. People are now more aware, I think, that modern scholars don't believe in many cases that some of the books that are ascribed to New Testament authors, are, like letters, have been written by them. And so I'll just talk about this in terms of, again, Ephesians. Keep it there for, for today. So this idea of pseudepigraphy, writing in the name of another author. One popular example of this is Bart Ehrman, who's a scholar I, I deeply respect. Uh, he's not really nice, great guy as far as I can tell, and have seen him in person at conferences. Um, he's a, a well-respected text critic, and he also writes popularly about the New Testament and other issues surrounding Christian origins. Um, he wrote a book called Forgeries, which was you know, kind of implying that a lot of the New Testament is based on this deceptive practice of writing in the name of another author. And here's where I just want to kind of caution us a little bit as modern readers of the Bible, that um, ancients didn't think about authorship the way that we necessarily did. So they did, they absolutely had a category for forgery. And the early church was aware of this as well, of the possibility of this kind of forgery. But there are other models of flexibility in authorship, kinds of pseudepigraphy that wouldn't be deemed problematic or forgery in that way. So I just want to give you two quick examples. And our examples are limited. They come from people like, I'm going to talk about Cicero here, uh, elite Greco-Roman authors who had large letter collections and talk about in their letters, their writings, their practices of writing. That's kind of our what we're limited to um, as historians from, from, from such a distance. But Cicero, for example, gives, the, uh, gives an example of authorship as he authorizing his scribe Atticus to write on his behalf. In other words, he gave Atticus, his scribe, whom he trusted, we assume, permission to write a letter on his behalf or write letters. This is what Cicero says to Atticus. If there are any people to whom you think that letters ought to be delivered in my name, pray, compose them, and see them delivered. So this is a way of Cicero authorizing the use of his name, his authorial authority, if you will, or persona. Um, to he, He's authorizing Atticus to use that as an extension of his authorship. And that actually kind of fits the model that some scholars, at least, if you don't think Ephesians was written during Paul's lifetime, well, it's clearly Pauline in, in outlook, and if it's some kind of development, it's likely this kind of a development where Paul has authorized the use of, of his thinking, his name, uh, maybe even some of his writing to uh, put this letter together. So it's a, it's a possibility, right? I'm not suggesting that it has to be this way, but I'm just highlighting that there are, there are different ways of thinking about this, right? There's also the example of authorship as if, one writing as if, they are the other person. This one might be moving closer to forgery, but there's still examples where it's not deemed problematic or forgery in quite that way. Cicero, for example, has, has a different secretary write in the name of Atticus, and he has dictates the letter, and this is praised by a certain Calius that Atticus is praised for this. And this is a way of Cicero increasing the profile of Atticus, even though he didn't have Atticus's permission necessarily to do this. So, there, there are other examples of writing, and I just wanted to 
to point that out so that we're aware that this is a more complex, nuanced conversation than simply either Paul wrote it or it's a lie, right? In terms of the destination of Ephesians, this, I think this is actually more interesting than the authorship, but I'm going to try to fly through this. Our earliest manuscripts actually don't have the destination of the letter in it. Uh, that is to say, in the manuscript itself. So it was identified as being to the Ephesians. A pros Ephesus is, is attached to the top based on that. But in the actual text of the manuscript, the ones that we have, um, en Epheso, which is in, Ephes in Ephesus, right? That's actually missing in the earliest manuscript that we have, P46, which dates back to about 200 AD. And Epheso isn't there. And in fact, Origen, early church father, never missing an opportunity, as, as a good church father or rabbi or would do, right? Anytime you have a corrupt text, textual uh, variant, there's always possible for spiritual illumination. And so Origen reads the text without in Ephesus as just, just as the being ones, the ones who are. And Origen riffs on Christians being the ones who really are, who really exist in Christ. So, it, you know, he takes full advantage of the text as it is in his reading of it. Other important early manuscripts also lack an Epheso, although in Sinaiticus you can actually see, you can go online and check this, it's uh, available free online. You can see the, the place in the margin where the scribe later came in and wrote an Epheso because it's missing in, it was missing from the exemplar, the, the, the text that the scribe of Sinaiticus copied. So was Ephesians really originally written to the church or churches in Ephesus? I think that's an open question, and it's an interesting one to ponder. I don't know that it ultimately determines anything for us, other than I would be cautious to make any particular situation in Ephesus the background through which I read the letter. It's a very general letter. Paul does not greet anyone in Ephesus in the letter, which is interesting because he spent two years in Ephesus. So if it is to Ephesus, I think we've got to date it earlier in his ministry, not later as some scholars have, or many uh, have Paul writing from Rome between the years of 60 to 62. So there's some other suggestions. Maybe it was an, what's called an encyclical letter. That is to say it was written to kind of be passed around to various cities. This was proposed, I think, for the first time in like the 17th century by an archbishop. And it has some merit to it. it. It reads kind of like a letter that could generically go from city to city. But again, it would be kind of deviating from Paul's typical way of doing things, which would be to include the city name there, whatever that city was. So perhaps an encyclical letter. Another really intriguing suggestion that we have from the church father Tertullian, he reports that Martian was a second century heretic. He actually was one of the first that we know of to bring together a large collection of Paul's letters. Martian um, identified this as a letter to the Laodiceans. And perhaps he was reading into this, but it's an interesting tradition given what we have in Colossians. Let me just read this to you. This is Paul writing at the end of Colossians to the, the churches in Colossae. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea, a neighboring city to Colossae. And when this letter has been read among you, that is Colossians, have it also read in the churches of the Laodiceans and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. Interesting. So is it just possible that Ephesians is actually that letter to the Laodiceans? That's a, another possibility. Ultimately, we don't know where the original destination was 
or in fact it might have been an encyclical letter. But it doesn't matter so much for our interpretation, only that I would caution against trying to read too much of, let's say, particular facets of Ephesus into the letter. It could be helpful, but we got to be cautious there because we don't actually know the original destination of the letter. Right. All right. So now I want to jump into why I love Ephesians. There are three major reasons. The first one has to do with Ephesians lays out for us the cosmic scope of the gospel. So reason number one is Ephesians lays out for us the cosmic scope of the gospel. The opening of Ephesians begins with a, a beautiful blessing. Paul greets the holy ones in Ephesus or wherever, <laughs> and he opens with this incredible blessing. It runs, it's like one major sentence in Greek running from verses three all the way through 14, just kind of running stacking of clauses where he's really emphasizing all things being drawn together in Christ. That this being, this is part of God's eternal plan. Indeed, it was God's eternal plan that all things would be brought together in the Messiah. It's also where we get language of predestination, which is oftentimes um, preoccupied, I think overly preoccupied Christian discussion. Here, I think the predestination is recognizing that all people uh, who find themselves in Christ were destined to be brought there from eternity. This is part of God's plan. In other words, as you find yourself in the Messiah Jesus, it's not an accident. God has willed you to be here from eternity past. And this also fits with the, the wider program of really where Paul's predestinarian uh, discourse always revolves around, which is the story of Israel and how the story of Israel relates to the story of the nations, the Gentiles. And here Paul's going to bring together, he's, he's saying that this was God's will for all eternity past for there to be one new humanity in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile brought together. So I see the predestination discourse really actually preparing the way for what we find in chapter two, where now we have the dividing wall of hostility being brought down uh, between Jew and Gentile and the creation of one new humanity. So I'll get back to that more in a moment. When we think about the, the cosmic nature of the gospel, what I mean here is it's God's victory over powers that have enslaved humanity. Uh, so we're talking about dark cosmic powers, which oversee then sin as a power that impresses itself upon human beings and to which we all fall subject to sin and death. Paul sees all, hum all, all of our stories being wrapped up in this larger story. Certainly, he distinguishes between the story of Jews and Gentiles, but fundamentally, we all are wrapped up in this same story uh, together. And th it's through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection in particular. Paul says that God put his power into effect, his mighty power into effect when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of God or his session, this is the image we get from Psalm 110, 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until uh, I make your enemies your footstool. And Paul reads these enemies as cosmic enemies. Death is the greatest one, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is now victorious above it all. He reigns in the highest heavens. He sits victorious and he sits now above and in control. And underneath him is his body, the church. Right. So 
in the victory, in God's victory in Christ, comes the, the good news of the gospel, the announcement that God is victorious, that Jesus is king, and all people can come and participate in the life of the Messiah uh, by repenting from sin, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, and being part of his people. And so what we find in chapter 2, then, is both the announcement of this good news gift, right, grace, that Jesus is the ultimate gift for humanity and that we're drawn into one new people by this gift. So you get you get the gift language, language of us all being together, raised with him and seated with him, made alive with him, raised with him, seated with him, participatory language, and then a description of what that leads to. So the, the gift that God gives in Jesus Christ is has an end in transforming us. And what we're transformed to comes in chapter 2, verse 10. We were created in the Messiah Jesus for good works, which God laid out in advance, that we might walk in them. So this pneumatic or spirit-filled regeneration that happens in the body brings us into a kind of new creational identity that we're now supposed to live and move and be as we will be fully when Jesus returns. Right? This is where the, the good works piece falls in, the spirit working through uh, the community. Paul is a big fan of good works. I hate to break it to any of you that don't like works. Paul is a fan of good works. Those are the things that spirit produces in and through us uh, when we come into to Christ Jesus. And he says these are the things that, again, God has set apart for us uh, from all eternity past. So this is the typical language sometimes we draw on of salvation, salvation by grace, and the, uh, the efficacy of the Spirit in the life of the believer. But it's deeply connected also to our life communally. And that's what I, I love when I talk about the cosmic scope of the gospel, the cosmic victory of Jesus over uh, the powers that hold us in, in, in captivity. And then through his victory, the unity that's brought about in this new humanity, salvation, deliverance, and unity. Even the term salvation, I think it's worth reminding ourselves of, We've often spiritualized the term salvation in our Christian context. Yet in the ancient world, salvation, soteria, was a highly political term. In other words, rulers, victors brought about soteria, the, the absence of war and the harmony among people. So when Paul talks about soteria in, um, in his letters, yeah, of course he's talking about spiritual salvation, the, the full deliverance of the person, indeed not just the person, the cosmos. But he's, he is talking about wholeness and well-being in community. That is absolutely a facet and an important facet of soteria, right? Paul is drawing on political discourse to talk about a new kind of community, the church or the people of God. So when we think about the movement in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, from what we typically kind of think of as justification, uh, salvation by, by grace through faith, all this kind of language, the movement then to 11 and onward through 22 isn't a new topic. It's the same. It's another facet of the same thing. So if we're thinking about the first part having to do with the, the vertical, right, the next part follows naturally. It has to do with the horizontal one new people in Christ being brought in uh, in together. And Paul here sees the cross as being that means by which God tore down the hostility that previously existed between Jews and, uh, and Gentiles. 
Now, the difference between Jew and Gentile or ethnic difference, or if you like a kind of ethno-racial difference that existed in the ancient world, that's not the same kind of thing that we experience today. But we do inhabit a world of what we could call both God-given image-bearing ethnic differences and racialized, sometimes by, uh, by evil means, right, brought about a kind of racialized differences. And that's kind of all wrapped together, right, in our current, um, in the, in our current state. So part of what we have to think through then as the people of God, as we think about the cosmic scope of the gospel, is what it means to be one people of God and what it means to break down the various walls of hostility that exist between various groups of people today and indeed within the church, right? We need to think deeply about what unity consists of. Ephesians gives us some really important principles. It doesn't give us a necessarily manual on how to work out unity. What Paul says is it's something Christ brings about, deeply important to God. We're told to guard the unity of the bond of the Holy Spirit. Um, This is something Christ brings about in the cross. Christ brings about this new humanity that grows into one temple, right? So you've got temple language of one people being built together. You've got body language of members of one body part. So Paul uses all of these really living metaphors that speak to a kind of, uh, I think, an ontological reality in his mind about the unity of people in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And, um, and so now our call is to, to work that out, right? And that means we need to think deeply about how we see ourselves, the kind of conversations that we're having around our, our various differences. How do we honor one another? How do we honor the glorious and wonderful diversity that we have in the church, not brush it away, right? How do we honor that? And, um, and how do we make sure that all people are welcome to participate in the body, right? Fully participate in the body. So if you look at the dynamics that we have here in, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, again, still thinking about the cosmic scope of the gospel, you could think about the outsider, uh, insider distinction and how that breaks down in what, uh, in what Paul does here, right? And there's, there's various debates on what, what Paul is doing here among scholars, and I'm not going to get into that. Um, what I see is I, I see an invitation from outside to come inside, and then for the inside to be kind of reshaped and reformed. So a picture of a kind of Israel that is ever expansive and inviting. And as new comes in, um, it's enriched and changed in beautiful new ways. Now, when we think about outsider-insider dynamics today in the church and what it means to honor all uh, different peoples, different racial, ethnic groups, um, and peoples from all parts of the globe, I think we have to be honest and own the fact that there are places like in majority cultures, so if you think about the United States, what the majority culture is and has, has been, that typically gets centered in conversations, right? So we can ask questions about who's been centered, who's been kind of at the center of the story, and has the invitation been for others to kind of come from the outside to become more like the center, or is there space for people to be themselves as God has made them uh, without just coming in to assimilate to whatever majority culture we have in mind. And so one thing that I think, one thing that really helped my thinking about what we see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is actually the comments uh, from Willie Jennings in one of his books, Christian Imagination, uh, where he talks, he, he invites us to see ourselves 
in all of ourselves in the identity as the Gentiles. That is to say that we can all go through a process, I think a healthy process, especially for people who are part of majority culture, more traditionally associated with power and privilege, both in culture and in the church. It's a very healthy process to go through a decentering where one identifies with the Gentiles as being graciously brought near into the people of God, right? So we're constantly going through a process where the center is looking outward to be decentered and those on the margins are looking to be brought in and be centered. And that's an ever-evolving thing. It should be, I think, an ever-evolving dynamic in the church. It takes hard work. It takes intentionality. It does um, it, it raises a, a host of different issues, but it's absolutely critical uh, and important work. I had a student of mine several years ago when we were working through this in Ephesians ask me point blank, and I thought it was a really profound question. He said, do we actually want unity? And I, I, he kind of extrapolated from there what he meant by that. He was talking more along the lines of, well, some, do we want unity with people that are theologically heterodox or something like that? Um, but I kind of went a different way with it, and I took the question seriously in this sense. I, I do think it's worth us wrestling with the ways in which in the church we, we rush towards an easy unity, right? A unity that comes kind of, uh, it's almost like with, with Bonhoeffer's cheap grace, we look for kind of a cheap unity. The reality is unity is hard work. Unity is painful. Unity looks like Jesus the Messiah going to the cross. That's how it's brought about. So if, the, if Jesus went to the cross and the Holy Spirit groans for us to be united as a people, I don't think we can assume that this is going to be an easy thing. I think it's going to assume that it's going to be a hard thing, that it's going to look like burden-bearing, decentering oneself, really working to listen and understand our neighbor and our brothers and sisters. So that, for me, all fits within the cosmic scope of the gospel. I don't dissociate my own individual salvation or going to heaven or something when I die from everything that's going on. I don't think Paul does. I don't think the New Testament does. The gospel is a cosmic announcement of the victory of God in Jesus Christ. And it's for all, right? And it's with this big picture that we start and begin and our participation in this good news, right? indeed becomes good news for us as individuals. But we don't start with ourselves as individuals. We start with God. Ephesians is very theocentric. It's focused on the activity of God in and through the Messiah Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's where we got to start. And when we see that, we get it that working our daily lives together, our seeking after unity, our fervent prayer in the Holy Spirit that there would be unity and revival in the church, all of that is gospel work not some deviation from the gospel. It's gospel uh, work for Paul. So that's one, uh, one point. The second one, uh, and I'll try to do these, these ones a little bit quicker. The second one has to do with the nature of spiritual warfare. And um, Ephesians, of course, has the classic text in Ephesians, uh, the end of the book, uh, the end of the letter, 6, uh, 10 through 17, where we get the, uh, the language of putting on the armor of God. And this is where people typically go when they think of, okay, I'm going into battle. I'm going to, uh, I don't know, cast out some demons from my neighbor's house or something of this nature. And I, I don't want to minimize the reality of wicked forces and spirits, you know, that may, may manifest themselves. 
Um, but I do want to highlight that the nature of spiritual warfare in Ephesians is very different than what we're often presented with in church or popular Christian culture. If you look at Ephesians, there's a group that Paul identifies throughout the letter from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6 that are the adversaries of God's people. He speaks of cosmic rulers and authorities. He speaks of the ruler and the power of the air. He does mention the devil at one point, and then he speaks again of cosmic powers of the present dark age. What you notice in Ephesians is Paul is speaking of, I think, spiritual beings, but he doesn't um, really ontologize them in the sense of drawing their personhood out. These are dark forces, dark spiritual forces that are trying to separate and divide human beings and oppress God's good creation. And these are the ones that Christ has now been victorious over and is seated at the right hand of God. So these are spiritual realities, right? They're, but the, the idea is rather than me going into a closet or into a house and casting out a demon, again, not saying that exorcism isn't sometimes a necessary thing, but rather than that being the focus of everything, what Paul's focused on in Ephesians is how the church collective stands against and fights against these dark cosmic forces. And so the announcement that God is victorious in Jesus then gets enacted in the church's daily life together. If you look at 3.9, Paul actually says that the church, the people of God, that it's through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety is made known to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, these dark forces that want to divide humanity now sit and see a new humanity being united in Christ Jesus, and it spells the end of their, of their reign. So, the battle takes place on a cosmic plane for Ephesians, and how it gets worked out is also really interesting. It doesn't get worked out in flashy you know, events or again, crusades of some nature. It gets worked out in daily, mundane life, daily love. Ephesians is all about daily love. So if you think about the end part, 6, 10 through 17, that's the part of the letter uh, if you want to use kind of technical terminology, the per oratio, where you, you're summing up the overall message of the letter and giving a final kind of hortatory encouragement, right, to the audience. That's what, where, where, this, where this language comes in the letter. And Paul has been speaking about unity, unity in the spirit, fighting for unity, daily love, how you work out daily love. So I always say the ground of spiritual warfare is waged, right, on in daily mundane love among the people of God. That's how you fight the battle. That's how you win the battle. It's not very glamorous, but that's it. Loving your neighbor well, showing Jesus to one another, loving each other on a daily basis. The devil shows up in the letter in chapter four, in a place where Paul's warning people, if you don't reconcile with your brothers and sisters, if you allow anger to fester, it can lead to retaliation. And that's giving the devil a foothold. When you when you lash out and retaliate instead of operate out of self-giving love, that's, that's how the enemy uh, wins. So the battle for Paul is primarily one of how are we going to love one another, right? That's what it's about. Focus is on love. And so how you treat your neighbor, how you love the, the, your family, the people of God, um, that, that's where it's at for Paul. And that's what winning the battle really looks like. 
So that's where, uh, that's another reason why I love Ephesians. It, it helps give me a perspective of what is the overarching nature of spiritual warfare? What's the ultimate purpose? And Paul says it's ultimately uh, oriented around a people standing together. Uh, notice when he says, put on the armor, that's a collective, that's a you plural. It's the people of God who stand together in love in fighting the battle. And then the last point, I, I'll try to make this quick, although it's it's a tricky one and I wanna do, do justice to it. So if you need to take a bathroom break or something like that, get a second cup of coffee, you can press pause here and you can rejoin uh, anytime, but I am gonna plow on because there's one more point that uh, I really appreciate about Ephesians. Love is a tricky word for me on this one because it, this is a topic, this, this whole area uh, makes me uncomfortable in that it raises questions that are uncomfortable for us and, and for some of us deeply painful and rightfully so. And, and so I never like to go to places that have been sources of pain for brothers and sisters. At the same time, I do think it's vital that we appreciate the gift that is uh, the household code in Ephesians. This is Ephesians 5:21 through uh, through 6:9. A word on the household codes. So Paul did not invent this kind of discourse of thinking about the, the ideal household or what a household might look like as three pairs: the husband, the wife, the the parents, and the children. Uh, typically, it would be the father, for the most part, who would be in charge of instructing the children. Even if the father wasn't the direct one instructing his moral responsibility to make sure the children were instructed. And then, of course, you had the master and the father would be the master of the house and um, enslaved persons living in the house. This tradition goes back to Aristotle thinking about an ideal or complete, a teleos household uh, consisting of these three relational pairs. And it's interesting where it shows up in Aristotle is actually his large work on politics. And I think there's something to that household discourses in antiquity tend to be political discourses. That is that the household is seen as a way of relating to the larger society. Either the household, either you have a society that's made, seen as being made up of these households, not the nuclear family as we think of it in the West, but kind of a larger household, or that the, the household, the familia, was actually like a microcosm of, uh, of the polis, the, the city. You have both of these ideas and they, they kind of overlap in thought anyway. So one of the questions might be, why did Paul feel the need to, to kind of go into this language, right? To, to talk about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And our, our challenge today, of course, is we live in a very different world than Paul. We live in a world where we still have two of the three relational pairs. We have the husband, the wife, the parents, the children, and thankfully not any longer master and slave although this text was used as justification to enslave black Americans of African descent, right? So we have to be very aware, and I don't think there's any way to treat this text responsibly without recognizing its, its, in, its interpretive history and how it's been misused um, to abuse other people, right? We can't get around that, and we, and we shouldn't. We, sh we, have to, we have to address that head on. There's a lot of pain in this text. We also can't get around the fact that this text talks about wives being subordinated to their husbands, and that's led to a lot of justification for spousal abuse. Uh, there's no way around that, and we have to deal with that head on. Is that what Paul is advocating for? No. But when we get to what Paul is advocating for, even there, there's, some, there's, a, lot to, um, there's a lot to unpack. And so I can't 
in this short time take you through this whole text and tell you, you know, on every single facet what I think Paul is doing. It's uh, I continue to wrestle with this text. I continue to nuance my thinking on different points. But let me give you generally what I think Paul is doing with this section of text. I think Paul is taking the world as it is, right? I don't think he's making a comment here on whether or not the patriarchal system, right, of hierarchy as it's constructed, the Greco-Roman patriarchy, is a God-given thing. I think it's an aspect of Paul's world. It's not an aspect he can instantly change with the snap of a finger. Um, and I think he, he in this text, is, um, through the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking into a very broken system and showing people who operate in various stations within this broken system how to love one another well in Jesus. So I think the primary mandate of the household codes is how, in a practical way, in a very broken world, how do people, amidst great power disequilibrium, how do people love one another well in Jesus? And a pattern that we see here is that Paul consistently commands the person with the authority to take on the role of Christ's self-giving nature, right? So the comparison between, I know we make a lot, a big deal about the husband being the head here. Uh, I see this being more about the organic connection of body and head and Paul wanting to talk about the way that, that, that marriage is, the marital union is a, a figure of the union between Christ and, and his people, the church. And, and so on the one hand, you could say like the husband, Paul saying the husband has to be the authority uh, figure. I don't go there. I don't think that's necessarily what he's doing. I think um, he's using this, again, using this body imagery and then calling the head to live out of the, the privileges that the head has to make sure those privileges are used for the, the, um, the well-being of the body, the wife. And so both are called, I think, in their various stations to perform the love of Christ to one another, recognizing that there are, that there are differences. In the same way, when Paul addresses masters and enslaved persons, he reminds the masters that you are to do the same. In other words, he gives instructions to the to enslaved persons about serving uh, well and, and serving as unto the Lord. That's what you find in all of these languages. The motivation for love and for service isn't the other person. It's the Lord Jesus. And he reminds the masters, you're to do the same. And by the way, you have the same. You both have the same master, kurios in heaven, the same Lord. So there's not an undoing here of a... A corrupt system, right? I, I'm going to say a couple things, a couple more things here. So bear with me. Um, I've often hear people trying to make the argument in church, and I understand why, because it it's um, I think it makes us feel better. I hear people making the argument often that well, Greco-Roman slavery actually wasn't a bad thing. It was actually a really good thing, and and that sort of distances. Paul's discussion here from the slavery that we see in the United States, even though we know that these same texts were used in the United States and elsewhere to uh, unjustly enslave and dehumanize people. The problem with that is it's not entirely accurate. There's no doubt that Greco-Roman slavery was different. There are different kinds of slavery. Um, but to say that Greco-Roman slavery was a picnic for everybody is a gross mischaracterization. Right? If it was such a great thing to be a slave. Why did they have slave laws for runaway slaves? Uh, why would runaway slaves face potential 
execution if they were uh, if they were caught. Um, masters could beat, could rape, could abuse their slaves with no legal repercussion. So we're not talking about your classic employee-employer relationship. And so we have to wrestle with the fact that the, the New Testament doesn't, you know, does not actually do away with the institution of slavery, right? Um, it gives the people of God instructions for how to live wisely in a broken and corrupt system. And so if we follow the mandate or the trajectory of the household codes, what I would say is it leads us in a liberative trajectory. So to read these texts well would mean to follow, I think, the trajectory of where Paul is going, which ultimately leads to liberation, right? To give people instruction in a broken, corrupt system is not to baptize that system. Now, again, I realize that that I'm putting myself, I mean, to comment on this passage, obviously people are going to disagree with some of the things I say. And you have Christians on the one hand who think that this system actually is God's ideal for the husband and the wife part, right? We know not the slave part. On the other hand, plenty of critical scholars will say, no, Paul is just assuming kind of the status quo uh, of the day. So it's, it's kind of risky to enter in. I think it was risky in a sense for Paul even to enter into this language because it leads to all kinds of potential misunderstanding and potential misuse. And it really raises, I think, for us the stakes of interpretation of Scripture. When we really dive into this part of Ephesians, we really have to ask ourselves, what are we doing when we're interpreting the Bible? What is the Bible for and how are we reading and with whom are we reading, right? If we read Ephesians 6, 9, uh, 6, 1 through 9, and no one has a problem with just jumping straight away to the analogy of the boss, the employer, and the employee, we're probably not reading in a diverse enough community, right? So big idea here is, and I'd encourage you to read through this text and wrestle with it, and, and please do email me your questions. I'd love it. I can recommend additional secondary literature, and I'd love to, you know, to do more on this, and maybe I, maybe I will at some time. But the big idea here, I think, with, with Ephesians is Paul is giving wisdom, right? Uh, or, or we could say that the Spirit through Paul is, is teaching Christians how to live Christianly in a very broken system. And why I actually really appreciate that is even though we are in the 21st century uh, and we've made many advances in certain ways, we don't thankfully, any longer have enslaved persons in the United States, although there are enslaved persons in other parts of the world, and we might talk about various ways in which our system is set up to still disenfranchise certain groups of people. But that aside, we have certainly made some advances, but we are in no way a utopian ideal society. So in the same way that the first century world was, was broken, uh, our world is broken too, right? There are aspects of that brokenness that we need to live through live through and work through. And as we're working through change, one of these th the things this text, can this text can remind us of is the need to love one another well and the need for, uh, in, in particular, people in positions of power in hierarchical settings to divest themselves of that power, to seek out the good of the other. So that's something that, to me, I really appreciate about this text. Again, love may be too strong because... It's a deeply uncomfortable, as you said, even painful conversation to work through the household codes. But I do think that there's a lot of wisdom to be had here 
And I think, again, Paul's instruction to us is about loving one another well, self-giving love in a very broken, uh, in a very broken system. Lots more we could say here about that, um, but I think I'll have to leave it here for now. So that those are some of the reasons why I really love and appreciate Ephesians. Of course, I'm going to be teaching a class on Ephesians coming up. So I've got Ephesians on the brain and it'll give me more time to unpack some of the things that I've tried desperately to do here in under an hour. We're, we're coming up on the hour mark. So just as a reminder, the three things that I think Ephesians really helps us focus in on. One is the cosmic scope of the gospel. Cosmic scope of the gospel, that all things are being renewed in Christ Jesus, that it's theocentric. It begins with God's activity, God's redemptive work, and we are invited to participate in God's redemptive work. And that involves both our uh, our reconciliation to God and our reconciliation to one another. The second is, again, the nature of the battle of spiritual warfare. The primary way that the church wages its battle is through self-giving love, bearing one another's burdens, living out the gospel in community with one another. That's how we, we do what we've been called to do. That's central to the mission of what it means to be God's people. And that's the signpost in the announcement that the age of the, the dark age of the powers and principalities is coming to an end. And then thirdly, Ephesians gives us wisdom for navigating the real world. Right? Talked a little bit about the nature of the ancient household. And yes, it was a broken, corrupt system. And yes, on one level, it would have been really nice for Paul just to spell it out and get rid of some of the dynamics that are at play. But we can also be grateful for the fact that Paul shows us here uh, by analogy we too can live out our lives in love in very broken uh, and corrupt spaces. So those, again, three reasons why I love Ephesians. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please stay tuned for the next episode.